This is episode 50 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are How to Waterproof Your Boots, U.S. Official Procedures Before SHTF, How to Know Before It Hits, and How to imp- Improvise and Use a Three-Stick Roy Croft Pack Frame. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Let's go ahead and get started. Our first article comes to us from Survival Sullivan. And again, the article is How to Waterproof Your Boots. Uh, Good article, a lot of good information here. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and start reading this one. Any hiker, naturalist, or survivalist will tell you that your boots are one of the most important tools you will have when outdoors. If a person doesn't have adequate footwear in extreme conditions, it can be a death sentence. If you have poor footwear, your ability to move, hunt, and retain heat are drastically affected and reduced. In the old days, people didn't need shoes, right? They were barefoot. Wrong. Shoes that helped society grow and expand date as far back as 500,000 B.C., Strips of leather for early man, then additions of studs and iron nails with the Romans as they marched. Today, while some may follow fashion, the modern survivalist has other things to consider when selecting shoes and his needs for them. He also needs to know how to clean, protect, and extend the life of this valuable commodity. As the area, terrain, environment, purpose, height, weight, and sex can vary making selections a personal thing, We will not be going over brands in this article. We will be discussing how to protect, clean, and a few different ways to weatherize the boots you pick. The main things to look for in a shoe for preppers. Thick soles for insulation and to resist slipping. Breathable layers and the ability to take wear and tear. Comfort. Rugged construction. Reinforced toes. Good arch support. Puncture-resistant soles. Electric shock-resistant materials and shoes that can aid you in walking, walking, climbing, crawling, and running. We have to clarify that to make your boots waterproof, you are only temporarily doing that. No amount of product or spray will make them permanently waterproof. If they are subjected to harsh weather and elements, you may need to apply waterproofing products quite often. When you waterproof, you are building a seal on the boots to make them resistant to water and moisture. There are a few ways of providing water resistance. Waterproofing is different than using shoe paste or creams to soften and nourish the leather as they usually are absorbed into the leather but do not leave a seal to resist water. Wax-based polishes may protect somewhat against light moisture and salt but adding a shine is not the same, although afterwards they may look the same with a nice sheen and luster. Specialty compounds for waterproofing. The main purpose of these is protection and they do a pretty good job at it. They can be used with a polish to provide the best of both worlds in visual and functional applications. Spray-on compounds to waterproof. These are better than nothing, but they lie on the surface and do not penetrate the leather. If it contains silicone, it it may dry out natural materials like weather. Sorry, like leather. (laughs) Using natural products. I like to use beeswax or lanolin for natural protection. They may darken the leather, so test first. It is now time to waterproof your boots to help extend their life and functionality as tools that you can rely on to do their job. I am using lanolin, the melted more liquid golden oil, 
and store-bought 100% beeswax to show you how we waterproof our boots and the before and after. There is a section below on melting beeswax that is in chunks, usually when you buy it from the local community garden. Step 1. Select a product to use. Water-based is good for all leathers. Oil-based should only be used for full grains leather. Oil-based may darken your leather. If you can find out what kind of leather the shoes are made from, they are specialty products for suede, nubuck, and split. If you are going to dye the leather, do it now. Step 2. Clean them with leather soap and a toothbrush to get all dirt and debris out of the cracks and seams, but do not let them dry completely. Leather opens up when it's wet and we want the pores open. You want them to be damp. Then, when water has penetrated the leather, will be cold and darker. Step 3. Apply your product. Commercial products will have directions. Put most spray or wipes on. For beeswax or lanolin, see our other DIY directions. Use a lint-free cloth. We use socks or old t-shirts. Step 4. Wipe on the surface and pay attention to get it in any joints, cracks, or seams. These will be your points for entry for water. This boot needs some love. And so I just want to say on this article, there's a lot of pictures here. So uh, a lot of good close-up pictures, a lot of pictures of different products and things like that. You definitely want to go check those out. Um, step five, you do not need to apply any products to rubber soles or rubber parts for the seams that are plastic or bottom heels, etc. I work in some wax or use a fabric bonding agent pictured below to fill a crack. Step 6. After letting everything soak in, use a clean cloth to wipe away the excess. Step 7. Let the boots dry at room temperature. I put these on a, the porch as it's, a nice, it's, as it's nice today. DIY using pure beeswax to waterproof your boots naturally. To use an all-natural product, my husband uses beeswax and has for many years on his boots. He uses a brand that uses Australian beeswax and is ready from the jar. It does say it's a stiff wax and can be used for dreadlocks too. I use beeswax from our local hive master and it takes an extra step or two. I think mine comes out shinier but his is thicker and does give a nice gleam. He also treks a lot more, hunts in varying terrain and is out in the rain more. So he likes the function. He reapplies whenever he is planning out to be out for a day that requires a lot of foot action. Unless he ran into wet conditions, heavy weeds, and undergrowth that would scrape it off, or heavy marshy mud, about once a month he reapplies. I do mind a few times a season. Step 1. And this is for using uh, natural beeswax. Step 1. Melt your wax. Step 2. Use a soft lint-free cloth or cotton swab to apply it. As it cools, it will turn white. That's normal. Try to get it into the cracks and seams when molten for the best penetration. Using the melted local beeswax, use a smaller application piece of material so you don't soak up your waterproofing compound. Step 3. He then uses a heat source to remelt the beeswax to make it sink, sink in better. You can use a heat source like a heat gun, but he just puts them in front of the space heater. Step 4. After buffing, you will have a nice sheen. In the picture below, store-bought beeswax is on the left and natural local beeswax is on the right. This is just applied to the toes. So again, uh, lots of pictures here. And that's why it's kind of taking me a little bit of time between steps because I'm, 
I'm having to scroll down uh, big pictures, which makes for a good shot, you know, and so you get you get a, a good shot of what they're talking about. Step five, uh, this is optional. For the beeswax and natural products, if it looks dull, buff with a soft cloth. These are after the whole boot has been treated. The most economical way to use an all-natural product if you can't find beeswax is using lanolin. You can get cosmetic grade lanolin for about $1 in health food stores. Many of the stores bought products do have petroleum jelly in them, so this is a chemical-free way to waterproof. You would use exactly the same method as above for beeswax. Beeswax is a little thicker, so lanolin is a tad shinier. A video showing how effective lanolin can be. There's a video that you can look that look at uh, or watch there. All right, so um, I heard of a tip for waterproofing your boots in a post-collapse situation or when you have no access to stores, etc., like when you are in remote areas or in rugged terrain. You can find a wax ring, the kind they use in toilets pretty cheap for a few bucks, and warm the wax and rub it in, much like beeswax. This is heavy-duty wax, and I can see it working like a thicker beeswax. If you will be spending time in, in very wet conditions, heavy snow and slush, or trekking through unknown areas without access to supplies, you may want to use this mes- method. Wet feet can mean death in conditions such as these, so for a few bucks, it's worth a try. Using wax to waterproof boots video. So there's another video there. Uh, it's not embedded, but the link is there that you can, uh, you can click on. So maintaining hiking boots. While it is expected foot... Expected footwear will break down. There are a few things that you can do to prolong its life. To ensure your hiking boots remain supportive, comfortable, and waterproof, here are some tips. Break in your new boots by wearing them for a week or so before you intend on using them. Nothing is worse than hiking in new boots and getting those blisters <clears throat> Excuse me, as your shoes haven't been broken in yet. Use leather conditioner and oils to keep the leather soft. New boots need waterproofing before you go on any major walks or hikes. Do this before you leave the house. Check for the laces and D-rings to be in good shape. Make sure all the stitching is intact. Clean during your hike, with any use or at the day's end. Tap them to loosen any debris and dirt, and then brush the surfaces to knock off sand and grit. Use a a stick or knife to pick, pick out stones and mud from the soles. If they are wet... Stuff newspapers or dried leaves inside to soak up the moisture. Do not dry in direct sunlight or too close to a fire or heater. You can crack the seals and melt the glue, allowing water to get in and sacrificing the integrity of the build. Change the newspapers hourly or when they become darker and damp. Don't let them freeze. This too can crack them. If you can take several pairs of socks, rotate them throughout the day to keep moisture at a minimum. As I lived in Arizona with tiny scorpions that fit everywhere and it was a daily ritual, but anywhere can have tiny critters like black widows, so shake out your shoes first thing. Look before you put them on. If you plan on waterproofing and protecting your boots to make them usable for quite a while on the outside, we need to make sure to take care of the inside, specifically freshening and keeping them odor-free. Bacteria is what smells when you smell any odors on your body or clothing, so thinking about it that way is the best way to eliminate odors. Kill the smell producing entities. Wash them. You may have picked up something on the outside. Wash condition, wash condition and then waterproof. For inside, these days, m- most soles can be taken out and washed. 
Wipe the boot out with a damp cloth and allow them to completely dry. Use baking powder. Baking powder should be sprinkled liberally. Tap the boot to get it in the cracks. In the morning, dump out the extra. If you have it, kitty litter absorbs moisture, so throw some in too. Disinfect. Use a spray disinfectant or make your own. Spray inside and, and out. Then let them dry completely. DYI boot spray and wipe. Use alcohol or vinegar if it is a strong smell. Add a few drops of essential oils to freshen. Many have antiseptic properties. DYI boot disinfectant too. Dab a few drops of peppermint, rosemary, or tea tree oil on a cotton swab or piece of cloth. Wipe inside the boot. Many essential oils are antimicrobial and are a great alternative to hand soap, deodorant, or even perfumes. A cheap way to get them, as they are expensive, is to use extracts. The ingredients say alcohol and orange oil, lemon oil, etc. So there is some oil in there, so they will do the trick, and they smell nice. So uh, there's a picture here of lemon extract, almond extract, orange extract. Uh, I would just use essential oils. Uh, you should you should have some essential oils. You should, if you're not using some, or at least you know. Uh, researching them i mean that's it's something good to 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 do there's we do plenty of articles on prepper website on essential oils leave a dryer sheet in them overnight make a pouch to stuff in the boot overnight with the ingredients above or use fresh tea leaves place in the boots nightly polishing it off boots can be expensive and priceless if shtf Learning how to properly care for them and the things to avoid that will ruin them will help you to prolong the life and use of your boots for many years to come. I hope these tips help to show you how to waterproof your boots and keep them in shape inside and out. So uh, a lot of good advice there. Definitely, uh, I never heard of the toilet ring or toilet wax ring uh, idea. And so that's a new one on me. Uh, if you've heard that one um Man, you leave me a comment and tell me how that worked for you. Because even in this article, they're not saying that they've used it. They just said that they've heard it. But if you have done that before, I'd love to uh, uh, hear about your experience just in, in doing that. You know, what did, what did it entail? But, uh, you know, if that works, that might be a good idea there. So uh, waterproof your boots there. Uh, good article. All right. So definitely go check that one out. Of course, I'm going to link to all these articles on episode 50 at the Prepper website podcast.com. Um, the next article got a lot of um, hits from Prepper website. It was a popular article. I don't know what people maybe um, you know were, were thinking when they when they heard the um, the title of it because the title is U.S. Official Procedures Before SHTF: How to Know Before It Hits. And basically, um, you know, maybe people were thinking, you know, like, you know, how is the government getting ready? It's not necessarily about that. It's what does the government do to um, when when a governor of a state requests for assistance? And so we're going to read this in just a minute. But the important thing, I mean, there's some good stuff here for you to understand the procedures, how, why. You know, sometimes things don't happen as fast when, you know, the government, the government talks about having three days worth of food and water. Uh, you know, that's the very, very minimum because that might be the minimum it takes for them to, to get to you. You should have a lot more than that. But anyway, I think this is good just to kind of understand the procedure. And then they, they do have some helpful stuff at the end here. This is coming to us from askaprepper.com. 
Again, U.S. official procedures before SHTF, how to know before it hits. In any major disaster or SHTF situation, there will always be two critical forces that respond, the government and you. Knowing what the government will do and what you should do are both critical. You need to know what action the local, state, and perhaps the federal government will take so you know what to expect, and you also need to know what you must do before disaster strikes so you aren't caught off guard. Government will always play a critical role before and during an SHTF situation from at least the local and state levels and in a large enough catastrophe from the federal level as well. This step-by-step process of how government will usually react to large-scale disasters should help clear things up for you. First and foremost, the federal government will only lend assistance to the situation after an official request has been made by the governor of the state. The president of the United States will then have to make an official declaration of emergency, and at that point, the FEMA, or Federal Emergency Management Agency, will then react as quickly as they can to the disaster, which... Uh, side note, is not as fast as you would like them to respond. Um, sorry, just had to interject there. Continuing on, uh, the primary goal of FEMA is to provide relief to everyone who has been affected by the extent to the, of, to the disaster. Before submitting a request for relief from the president, the governor of the state affected by the disaster will order a preliminary disaster report. The governor will then proceed to request that the president declare a state of emergency in the affected areas. It should be noted that while the governor can submit this request while the disaster is taking place, he or she can also submit the request before the disaster or when it is imminent, such as when it is obvious that a hurricane will soon strike the coastline. Once the president has declared a state of emergency, he will be able to send funds to the local and state government to help provide relief to those affected. FEMA will engage the services of a dozen different departments at the federal level. The very act of the president declaring a disaster is a clear sign that the disaster is major and beyond the capabilities of the state or local government to handle in its own. In addition, the president will provide assistance to both private and public relief efforts. The governor will also be able to request different kinds of assistance from the president. There are also many different ways in which the federal government will be able to provide assistance, including the following providing personnel, equipment, and supplies to help in the relief efforts, loans and grants, technical assistance. Meanwhile, the state government will react to the crisis in the following ways, reviewing and improving local response efforts, coordinating the state EOC to help in relief efforts, determining if more federal assistance is needed, and activation of the state disaster preparedness plan if a state of emergency is declared by the governor. The federal government will only become a source of resources for local and state governments if the disaster is so severe that local and state governments cannot handle the situation on their own. FEMA will then coordinate the implementation of the FRP, or Federal Response Plan, which allows states to then work with FEMA in accessing resources and programs from the government. The FRP will also decide how the federal agency resources and the American Red Cross can work together to provide relief to the site of the disaster. An EST, or Emergency Response Team, will also be established in Washington to monitor the relief efforts from there. These are the primary steps that governments will undertake in response to a disaster, either before it happens or while it's happening. Your response to to the disaster. Let's say you'll still be caught off guard but you at least have some time to make some preparations before the disaster comes to you. What to do two hours before a disaster. 
Begin collecting as much water as you can by filling up your sinks, bathtubs, water containers, buckets, and anything else capable of storing water. Here's how to build a water purification system in 10 minutes. Okay, I know I've said this before, but um, if you're new to the podcast and you haven't heard this one, you of course you're not uh, you're not drinking out of sinks and bathtubs. That would just be for um, you, there's no way that you can get a bathtub clean enough to drink that water out of it. That's mostly going to be for flushing toilets and stuff like that. Um, if you have a water bob, you know, water bob is like uh, twenty to thirty bucks. And that will hold 100 gallons and it will sit inside of your bathtub. And you can fill that up and you can use that for drinking. There's a pump that works off of that. But if you're using, you can use anything, any kind of container that has a form, even if it's a drawer, right? And you just need to have some kind of plastic. That's where contractor bags come in. You should have those contractor bags. You should just have a couple of packages always, you know, uh, ready to go. And so that's where those come in. So you can put them over any kind of container. So the container is just going to hold the form and water would be inside of the plastic. And so that would make it safe to drink. But you're, you know, if you're in that situation, you're filling up everything that you possibly can, all pots and pans and, and all that kind of stuff, any, you know, plasticware pitchers and stuff like that so that you do have uh, stuff for drinking. But anyway, uh, Again, so there's going to be links as well, uh, links on like building this purification water system that uh, Ask a Prepper is talking about. Uh, you're you're going to want to hit that on, on his site. Okay, continuing on. Double check your home, stockpile, water, food, medical equipment, ammunition, personal hygiene items, and so on. If you are lacking anything that's absolutely necessary, then you should consider making a quick run to the grocery store. Okay, uh, sorry. I'm just going to have to make another quick note here. Two hours before... Uh, a situation or like a hurricane, you're not going to find anything at the store. Um, um, like I've, I've talked about again before on the podcast, uh, when Hurricane Ike was coming, uh, we had already gone through uh, Hurricane Katrina had hit New Orleans. Hurricane Rita was supposed to be a direct hit to Galveston and then up 45 and hit Houston, but it, it didn't. It went uh, further east. Or, well, I guess, yeah, further east from us. And so it didn't hit Houston, but uh, we learned on that one how fast things would be, you know, out of the store. So when Hurricane Ike was in the Gulf and uh, the projections were still not 100 percent, that's when we went to the store and we got everything we needed. And that was a couple of days before it hit uh, hit the coastline. So uh, you definitely two hours before is not going to be enough time if you know, that's that's why that's. That's why we prep, man. That's why we that's why we have stockpiles already. So if you're listening to this and you have a situation, you have situations, natural disasters like hurricanes, snowstorms, you know, tornadoes, those kinds of things, uh, you want to go ahead and, and and be prepared ahead of time, um, and definitely just be prepared in, in general for whatever. Uh, okay, moving on. I'm just kind of just filling in a lot there, right? Giving a lot of commentary. All right, if you decide that you need to bug out quickly, conduct an inspection of your bug out bag and your bug out vehicle to make sure everything is present and in good working order. All right, I'm not going to comment on that one, but uh, I'm not going to comment. All right, I'm going to keep going. Most importantly, get in contact with each member of your family and have them meet you at your house. What to do 90 minutes before a disaster. Get as much cash as you can from an ATM machine. Continue contacting more family members you haven't gotten a hold of. 
This is your last chance to pick up any additional supplies that you may need, such as aluminum foil or fuel or ammunition or prescription medications. What to do one hour before disaster? If you're going to bug in, begin placing your items at strategic locations. For example, have a bug out bag ready to go at the front door in case you need to suddenly evacuate without warning and place firearms at key defensive locations in your home, depending on the situation. For example, if a hurricane hits and you didn't have time to evacuate, then get some of your supplies in the attic. Uh, what to do 30 minutes to a disaster? If you're going to bug in, then it is not long Long, it is no longer safe to go outdoors. You need to have everybody in your home with the doors locked. Have your emergency radio going to keep track of the news. Have somebody in your family on watch for signs of trouble outside of the house. Hey, let me. So there's a lot of comments here. So there's 24 comments uh, on on this article. So you want to go check those out. Hey, let me give a just on that last point. Have somebody on your family on watch. You know, when when Hurricane Ike hit, a lot of our area was without electricity, and we lost electricity probably for about four days. Uh, some of our friends had power, so my wife and the boys went to go stay. I decided to stay here, and uh, which was, um, you know, it was dark, whatever. I just I wanted to stay here at the house, and it was a good thing that I did because the rain came uh, that next evening. And uh, there was so much debris and so much rain in uh, in the backyard, in the pool, that our drains, so we have drains that go out to the street, that our drains were clogged and w- water was starting to go over the side of the pool and was starting to run into our porch. So in the middle of the night, I mean, it was raining, it was kind of storming, uh, it was, you know, nasty. Uh, but in kind of waking up because, you know, it's hot and the AC's not running, you don't have power, and just using the flashlight and looking outside, uh, I could see that it was puddling and I could see why. So I was able to go out to the to the pool in, uh, you know, in the middle of the night when it was kind of storming and move the debris from uh, from the drain. So, um, you know, that's it's good to be on the watch and kind of looking out and making sure that everything is going to be safe. It would have sucked that we got through the hurricane, you know, fine, except for losing power. And then we go to a friend's house and then come back the next day and then we're flooded because of the pool, because there was debris in the pool. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a good point there. All right. But I mean, if you have to bug out, you have to bug out. There's nothing you can do uh, about that. But I was glad that I stayed that evening. So a uh, good article there. Um, and, and also, if you've never really understood how or, you know, how the, the state or local government asked for relief from the, from the government, you see this procedure. So, you know, you kind of understand why it takes so long for things to get moving. Uh, and why you should be prepared for yourself and, and why you shouldn't depend on that. All right, so moving right along. So because it is Friday, I usually pick an article from the archives and uh, decided to go in. I realized that we haven't had an article on bushcraft recently. So, um, you know, my friend Todd at Survival Sherpa went into the archives and went to go find an article that I thought would be beneficial to us out here and uh, found this one. Uh, this was a good article. I remember reading it while uh, back in the day, but I mean, it's two years, two years old, um, but it's, it's really great. Todd does a great job of providing a lot of pictures, graphics, videos, and uh, you know, he's doing it all. You know, this is all his own stuff. So I, I appreciate his work in, 
in what he does in, in putting together his articles. So this is called How to Improvise and Use a Three-Stick Roycroft Pack Frame. And you might think, man, I got a, I've got my own bug out bag or, you know, I've got a backpack. Why would I even need this? He, he lets you know why you need this here at the beginning. So let's go ahead and start reading this from SurvivalSherpa.com. How to Improvise and Use a Three-Stick Roycroft Pack Frame. All right, here we go. Debates happen from time to time over which is more important for self-reliance, gear or skills. With our emphasis on developing doing the stuff skills here, you probably already know my position. But then again, you may be surprised. Here's my take. Both skills and gear are essential to self-reliant living. Modern gear is not evil, neither are primitive tools. Each primitive skill practitioner, prepper, homesteader, and woodsman needs tools. It has something to do with opposable thumbs. Tools wrapped by skilled thumbs are capable of making gear. For instance, take the modern backpack. They're constructed with state-of-the-art material and built with internal frames. They're designed to haul loads comfortably over long distances. My Osprey pack has many convenient pockets, pouches, and bells and whistles. But what kind of burden can you carry with modern internal frame packs? Clothing and camping stuff mostly. Here's the thing, though. Try carrying a load of firewood back to camp or quarter deer with an internal frame pack. They're pretty one-dimensional. People all over the world have been using crude A-frame packs to carry heavy burdens for thousands of years. Otzi the Iceman used an external frame pack over 5,000 years ago made of a bent sapling. Though his was not an A-frame style pack, an external frame can carry odd-shaped loads that modern internal frame packs can't. Let's get started. You'll get to use knife skills, knots, and lashings to make your own. Roy, Roycroft Pack Frame The Roycroft Pack Frame was named, not self-named by the way, after Morris Kachansky, friend Tom Roycroft. Mr. Roycroft, the survival instructor in the Canadian military in the 1960s, used the time-tested idea of using three sticks and cordage to teach downed pilots how to construct a pack. The simple idea was adopted and used successfully. Material list, three sticks, cordage, cutting tool, knots and lashings, a trucker's hitch, a bowline, blood knot, clove hitch, and lark's head. Step one, harvest three sticks, upright poles, harvest saplings that are straight and thumb size in diameter. For the uprights, cut two sticks that measure from armpit to finger, tip and length. Stripping the bark from the poles will help preserve the wood, but isn't necessary. Lumbar pole. This stick should measure from elbow to fingertip. Try to find a stick that is slightly curved to, to conform to your belt line. However, a straight stick will work. Step 2. Lashing uprights. Start by using a tripod lashing on the two uprights. Place the two uprights together with the bottoms even. Begin lashing about 3 inches from the top of the poles. When done, spread the two apart to form the A-frame. Again, uh, Todd does a great job of giving you a lot of pictures here and showing you exactly what he's talking about. Check out our video tutorial on how to lash a tripod. You'll only lash two sticks though. Lashing with natural cordage may require a butterfly notch at each sec intersection. Step 3. Lash the lumbar pole. Uh, so edit 10-20-15. After publication, Chris, Chris Noble, a friend and writer, owner of Master Woodsman, noticed something about my frame. My lumbar pole is to the inside of the frame. By lashing this piece to the outside of the upright poles, 
A small shelf is created which would offer a ledge for loads like camping chuck box to rest upon. Thanks for suggesting this Morris Kachansky's modification and your attention to detail. Place the lumbar stick on top of the upright so that the bend is protruding between the two uprights. Make sure you have about an inch and a half of overhang at each intersection of the lumbar and uprights. The intersections will not be perpendicular. Use a square lashing or diagonal lashing to secure the lumbar section to the upright poles. I use a square lashing on one and a diagonal on the other just for practice. Learn to tie a square lashing here. I'll have to do a diagonal lashing tutorial soon. Step number four, attach loops to frame. Loops of cordage are multifunctional. Besides being hand, handy tie outs to secure loads on the frame, the loops can be used to set up a tarp shelter. You can check out my first video how I set up an emergency five minute shelter. To make quick release loops, cut six pieces of cordage 18 inches long. Tie a blood knot in each piece of cordage. This knot is easy to untie after being cinched tight. After each loop with, I'm sorry, attach each loop with a lark's head knot, one on the lumbar pole, two on one upright, and the remaining three on the other upright. The lark's head knot is easy to adjust on the poles depending on where you want the loops placed. Step five, add shoulder belt straps. Cut a piece of rope three double arm length. For outstretched fingertips to your, uh, from outstretched fingertips to your other outstretched fingertip. One of my outstretched double arm length is about six foot times three equals about 18 feet. I used a piece of three eighths inch rope from my strap rope box in my shop, which measured about 16 feet. Note: If you use natural rope like hemp or Manila, you'll need to add whipping to the cut ends to prevent fraying. Double the rope in evenly to form a loop in one, in one end. Thread the loop under the top A-frame intersection from the inside of the frame. Tie a lark's head by inserting the working ends of the rope through the loop. Work the knot tight so that the two loose ends are going through the top of the V on the pack frame. Again, good, uh, good pictures here to kind of explain uh, what he's talking about. Lift the empty pack frame onto your back with the lumbar support at or slightly above belt height with the ropes over each shoulder. Reach back and wrap one rope around the upright and lumbar intersection on the same side of the shoulder strap. Repeat the process for the other shoulder strap. Pull the pack tight to your back. Now you can secure the re remaining rope around your waist as a belt. To make a quick release waist belt, tie a trucker's hitch, watch our video of a trucker's hitch here at 2.30 minutes, on the belt portion of the rope. Once secured, tuck any remaining rope behind the pack frame. Step number six, load the frame. Use your shelter system, tarp, poncho, or other waterproof cover as the shell. I use my homemade oil skin bed sheet tarp. Lay the frame on the ground with the outside facing up. Make sure the loops are to the outside of the frame for easy access. Place the tarp on top of the frame. Here's the key to packing a comfortable Roycroft frame. So he shows you uh, pictures step by step here of what it would look like. Um, stuff a sweater or soft uh, or other soft material sleeping bag in the triangle so that it protrudes past the frame as a cushion for your back. Now you can add your other items on top of that layer. I pack a dry bag with items I won't need until setting up camp.
Once your load is ready on top of the tarp and frame, wrap the sides of the tarp over the burden. Wrap the bottom of the tarp up and over the sides. The top of the tarp folds over last like an envelope to shed rain. Again, a lot, a lot of great pictures here. He just walks you step by step. My shelter uses a 25-foot piece of paracord as the ridge line. Double this cord to form a loop. Place the loop end over one of the upright poles at the top of the A-frame. Run the working end through the loop on the lumbar pole and back around the upright pole. Cinch tight. Begin threading the cordage through the side loops in a crossing fashion to alternate side, sides of the pack frame cinching tight on each loop. You may not use all six loops. For larger loads, don't double the 25-foot section of paracord. Simply tie a bowl and knot on one end and slip over an upright to give you more cordage to secure the load. To terminate the cordage, tie a trucker hitch after going through the last loop. This allows a quick release while tightening the load. Number seven, or step seven, mount the pack. For a light load, stand behind the upright frame on the ground with the shoulder straps in each hand. Lift the pack up and around your body so that the shoulder straps are in place. Secure the bottom two corners as described in step five above. Tie off the belt securely. You'll notice that the rope will dig into your shoulders and trapezium muscles. To distribute the load, slide a thin piece of wood under each rope to bridge the gap between your pectoral muscles and shoulders. Prepare these pieces before you lift the pack on your back. Sherpa style. External pack frames have played a key role in conveying heavy loads over long distances. The Roycroft frame offers a lightweight option for anyone needing an improvised backpack. I am planning to modify my Roycroft frame with padded shoulder straps from an old Alice pack to be my go-to backpack. Why not? I'll be able to carry the large stones my rock-loving dirt road girl picks out for her yard collection. Yep, I'm her beast of burden. If, you, if you've ever built and used a Roycroft pack frame, we're always interested in learning new tips and tricks to make ours better. Share your knowledge in the comments section or social media. All right, so um, there's uh, you know there's comments here that you can go check out and uh, things that people have offered, information that people have offered there. So uh, good article there on improvising a backpack. You never know when you might need it, and uh, you know this is something. This is a good little project to do, maybe with the kids or the grandkids, and getting them out there and, and showing them something that uh, that they might you know, come that would come in handy in the future. You know, one of the pictures that's kind of impressive, impressive is Todd carrying uh, his his chuck box that he described or that he talked about uh, on his back, and he's got that strapped to his uh, to his back. So it looks pretty pretty good there. All right, so good article again. Like I said, uh, you're going to want to visit this one because he links to a whole bunch of stuff. If you're interested in knots, if you're interested in lashing, if you're interested in just bushcraft stuff, you want to go check out Survival Sherpa. Todd does a good job over there of putting his stuff together. So anyway, that's it for uh, episode 50. Wow, I can't believe it's episode 50. But uh, that's it for episode 50. Hey, um, it's uh, 
you know, we're heading into the weekend. If you are looking for more preparedness information and you don't hit Prepper website on a regular basis, or maybe you've hit the, the podcast here and uh, you're like, hey, I'm intrigued. I'd like to know more about preparedness. You definitely want to go over and check out PrepperWebsite.com. Uh, a link to it from uh, the Prepper website podcast, but you can just go to PrepperWebsite.com. And uh, it's, a, it's a Drudge Report style website, and we link to somewhere between 8 to 12, sometimes even more articles, new articles every day, um, you know, Sunday through Sunday through Saturday. So we're always putting out uh, good articles out there. The preparedness community, community is always putting out great stuff. So prepper, survival, bushcraft, homesteading, all types of stuff out there, uh, you know, of interest that you can go and peruse and get that information. Hey, if you haven't uh, got on the mailing list, the new mailing list, uh, you are welcome to come join that at the prepperwebsitepodcast.com. It's in the menu section. Just uh, click that, join the mailing list, and you'll also be automatically registered for the free um, the free e-course, A More Self-Reliant Life. You'll automatically be enrolled in that, and that's five lessons that you'll get one lesson a week uh, coming to you through your email. Also, I encourage you to join the Facebook group. Uh, man, over the last couple of days, we've had a lot of people coming and joining, and that's great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't been able to spend a whole lot of time in the last couple of days there, but uh, looking forward to uh, you know maybe putting some questions out there and, and getting to know some people uh, and see how that goes. So you're welcome to come. Uh, we have... Um, a link on the prepperwebsitepodcast.com. It says free fi- free Facebook group. Click on there and then request to join. And if you look like you're not a troll or a bot or whatever, uh, you look like you you know if you're somebody who wants to come and be part of a community who's wanting to help each other out, you are more than welcome to come and do that. So uh, I hope you have. That's it for again the the podcast. I hope you get a little bit of time this weekend to go do something that will better your self reliance. So let me end with this. Choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government, grid, or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.